listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of Questions for Corbett. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan. This is the October edition of the Questions for Corbett series, where you send in the questions and I supply some answers. It's been a while since the last formal edition of this podcast, although you will note that episode 37, which came out last month, was the Q&A from my presentation in Denmark uh, that I did last month. If you haven't checked that out, I suggest you do so. Again, that was posted up as questions for Corbett number 37. And I recently did a Reddit AMA and Ask Me Anything thread with a bunch of questions and answers, including some video answers. So if you didn't see that, I'll throw in the link to the article where I mention that and provide the link directly to Reddit there so you can see some of those questions and answers. But Let's get to your questions and answers. And as always, there are many ways to get your questions and answers in for this podcast. You can, of course, submit them via Twitter using the Q4C hashtag. You can use my contact form on CorbettReport.com. Just click the contact button on the uh, top menu bar and you will either be able to send a text message or you can record your voice leaving a message and we'll play the audio of that question here on the podcast. Or, of course, you are free to upload a video uh, to any video sharing service. Just set, drop me an email to let me know that you have uploaded it and uh, that will be entered into the mix for consideration. But perhaps the best, easiest, most straightforward way to do it is for Corporate Report members to log into the website and leave your question in the comment section of this edition of the podcast. And speaking of which, we had a question in uh, from last time from Nick. So let's go straight to the first question. He writes, Hi James, been meaning to ask a few questions for a while, but with the new conspiracy law now in effect and your recent interview with Graeme Smith of Voluntary Japan last month, I felt I should hurry up and ask them now. Uh, number one, as an outspoken foreign resident in Japan, do you feel the need to avoid certain subjects for fear of incurring the wrath of the Japanese authority, uh, government? Are you aware of any interest the Japanese authorities may have in your work? And how do you feel the recent law will affect your work? Uh, number two, are you aware of any Japanese networks, groups, etc. in Japan sympathetic to your views and opinions and whom you might want to recommend other foreign residents in Japan to get in touch with? As a fellow foreign resident in Japan and a follower of yourself and Graham Smith's over at Voluntary Japan, with whom I'm working on a project or two, I would love to reach out to some Japanese who share our views, but have so far found none. Uh, would love to know if you have had better luck. And number three, are you, uh, are any of your videos or essays available in Japanese? All right, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that, Nick. Uh, let's answer your questions in reverse order. Number three, uh, nope. Uh, I don't have any of my videos translated in Japanese that I know of. Um, uh, my Japanese is not good enough to do translation of heavy political topics like this. Uh, my wife is not interested in doing translations of this work. Um... Uh, uh, and I haven't had any offers from anyone. If anyone out there wants to translate any of my work into any language, uh, please do so and distribute that translation in any manner or form you see fit to any outlet that you want. Uh, if you want to give it to me, the only way that I can make use of translations is as .srt files. .srt is a certain type of file uh, it's a caption file for videos, and I can just upload that to GooTube, and it'll do the auto-caption thing, and I, it, it will auto-caption the, the video in that language. So, uh, if anyone wants to do that, they feel free to send me any SRTs, and I'll get that uh, up on any of my videos. Um, so, that's always an option, but as far as I know, there's no Japanese translation of my work. 
Uh, number two, uh, uh, groups or, you know, organizations in Japan that you could connect with. Well, I have talked to Mark Abea a couple of times. You can search my archives for that. Uh, he has been affiliated with the Tokyo Tea Party. I'm not sure the status of that organization. We did talk about that, I think, back in 2012 on Corbett Report Radio, so it's been a while. Uh, I don't think it's a particularly active group, and it's all in Japanese. And it, uh, they focus, I think, on Austrian economics and that type of thing, which is interesting for a Japanese group. Certainly outside the mainstream of Japanese uh, political and economic topics, but there you go. Um, maybe something to look into anyway. Uh, I've talked to Ken Shishido of the Tokyo Bitcoin Meetup Group. Again, link in the show notes. Um, I've talked to, uh, uh, as you say, uh, uh, Graham Smith of Voluntary Japan. I was a guest on that program. If you didn't see that, and most people didn't, I'll th throw the link into his uh, YouTube post of that uh, from earlier this year. I think so, earlier this year. Uh, I've talked to Yoshi Khan of Satori Coin. Uh, I talked to him when I was up in Tokyo. Uh, several years ago, I went to the Tokyo, the Osaka 9-11 uh, Truth Conference, um, where David Ray Griffin was speaking. This was back in 2008, I want to say. And that was hosted by Yumi Kikuchi, who I believe also put together the uh, Richard Gage presentation in 2009, I want to say. Um, so... Uh, I don't know what Yumi Kikuchi is up to these days, or, or I haven't heard anything from her in several years, so I'm not sure if she's still active in these circles. Other than that, I know, I mean, I've been contacted by a lot of different people living in Japan, both expats and foreigners and Japanese, and some of them have their own projects and things going on, um, but there isn't a group or organization that I know of per se. If there are any Corbett Report members in Japan that want to leave any ideas or groups or organizations or anything you're a part of or anything you're doing in the comments section of this Questions for Corbett, please do log into the website and leave that for others to read. Um, that would be good to know. But as far as I know, I don't, I don't know of a group or organization that's doing this um, in, you know, in English circles, English-speaking circles at any rate. Uh, I'm sure there is Japanese uh, stuff in this realm, but I don't interact with that. Um, and the first question that you ask about uh, the censorship, I don't censor my commentary uh, based on fear of reprisal from the Japanese government. As I've said before, that was the whole point of me setting up this website, was that every time I talked about this, that when I first started doing this, when I talked it to, about it to any of my friends, they'd say, aren't you worried you're going to be on a list? Well, that was the whole point. If you are afraid that you're going to be put on a list for just speaking about issues like this, just putting up open source information that's, that's already out there, if you're afraid to do that, I mean, that's exactly why it needs to be done. Um, because if you don't speak out at this stage, when are you going to? Or are you just going to let it get worse and worse for your children and their children and their children until there's no possibility to even speak. I mean, it's it's ridiculous to me to think that fear of being put on a list would be the reason I would stop doing this. So no, I haven't censored myself at all because of this. And as far as I know, I don't, I mean, I've never heard from any of the Japanese government in any capacity. So I don't know. I, I don't know if they're aware of me and I hope they're not. But at any rate, <laughs> at any rate, you know, it is what it is. And I'm not going to censor myself based on that. So thank you for that, Nick, and I hope we do get some ideas for organizations and groups here in Japan. Uh, the next question is an email question. It's in from Vega, who writes, uh, What is your take on Aaron Russo's interview where he exposed the 9-11 fraud, Rockefeller-funded feminism, and microchipping? 
Uh, who was this Nick Rockefeller? Can't seem to find much about him. Excellent question, Vega. Thank you for the question. So, um, hmm, who was Nick Rockefeller? That's an interesting question. So for people who don't know, this is about, uh, I think it was uh, Warnings and Reflections, something like that. That was the name of this hour-long interview with Aaron Russo that, that was fairly well-known, I would say, in conspiracy circles a decade ago. Uh, it was one of Aaron Russo's final interviews, um, and he talked about a number of things, including meeting Nicholas Rockefeller of the Rockefeller family, who told him back in 2000, told him that there was going to be an event, and on that event they were going to go into Afghanistan and Iraq and maybe Venezuela after that, and this and that was going to happen, and ultimately you were all going to be microchipped, and Blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, there's a lot of details in that, including, do you, uh, you know, Aaron, why do you think we, we helped bring uh, feminism about? It's not why you think and all that kind of stuff. So that's an, I mean, it was a, a fairly well-known story at any rate a decade ago in conspiracy circles. I don't know how much it's uh, common knowledge these days. And you can still see that interview online. It's widely available. Um, but the question is, who is Nicholas Rockefeller? He, Aaron Russo in that interview, I think they showed the picture of Aaron with Nicholas Rockefeller. So it's this guy. And everyone at the time, including myself, just took it, oh, you know, Nicholas Rockefeller must be a Rockefeller, must be part of the Rockefeller family. But is he? So this is the, uh, the Rockefellers in American Dynasty, Peter Collier and David Horowitz, which is one of the standard Rockefeller biographies from the 70s. And it has um, the best... The most thorough um, Rockefeller family tree that I know of, in graphic form anyway, um, that goes up to the fourth generation, which at that time was the kind of operative generation, or the up-and-coming generation, I should say, back in the 70s, uh, which presumably um, Nicholas Rockefeller would have at least been in that generation. Um, one would imagine he wouldn't have been born after, you know, in the 1970s. So, um, so here is that, and he's certainly nowhere on here. Uh, he's not on the John D. Rockefeller family tree. Now, it's possible he could be elsewhere on the, the Rockefeller family tree, i.e. William Rockefeller, who was John D.'s younger brother and a co-founder of Standard Oil. But as far as I can tell, and as much as I can research into that, William's uh, Rockefeller's family lineage does not show any Nicholas in the grandson generation. So no sign of him there. Um, perhaps he was part of him, even, you know, one of the other branches of the Rockefeller family tree. Maybe, you know, Lucy or Marianne or Franklin or Francis, who, you know, I mean, no one even knows about. Uh, it's, so the, if, if Nicholas Rockefeller is on the Rockefeller family tree, and I can't find him anywhere on there, in any permutation, but if he is somewhere there, he may be on one of the kind of outer branches of the family tree, not part of the, quote-unquote, the Rockefeller family, i.e. the John D. Uh, Rockefeller lineage. He is not part of that family. So that's interesting. So who is he? Well, he is a real person. He is a person. Um, we, can, we can determine that. He has a highly sketchy website, which you can go and check out, nicholasrockefeller.org. Um, and there is a Bloomberg page on him, um, noting that he is an attorney. Uh, he's named as a member of the advisory board for the RAND Center for Asia-Pacific Policy. Uh, he is a CFR member that you can confirm on the CFR membership page. Uh, there's a New York Times article from 1999 about a luxury hotel deal in Indonesia that uh, his Rock Vested Development Group was part of um, that does say he, uh, that does mention he is connected with the Rockefeller family, but does not give any details of that. 
Um, and then this Rockfest development it doesn't seem to be in any way related to the Rockefeller, i.e. Rockefeller Foundation, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, any of that kind of stuff. So I, I, it just gets sketchier and sketchier. Um, my best my best guess at this, and I don't have the 100% details on this, but my best guess on this is that either Nicholas Rockefeller is some very fringe kind of member of one branch of the Rockefeller family tree that's far from the center and uses that name, like, oh, I'm a Rockefeller, but isn't really, you know, he's not David, he's not, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the brothers or what have you. So it might be that situation, or he might be a con man. I mean, it might be someone with the name Rockefeller who's just using that name, like, just, hey, I'm Rockefeller, you know, I'm Rockefeller. It could be a complete con man, for all I know, I don't know, but he is, he's clearly something. He's on CFR and what have you, so he's something. But um, what relation to the Rockefeller family tree, I don't know. And to some extent, I mean, to some extent, there's some kind of con going on here. I mean, he's not, he's not in the thick of things, because there's almost, I mean, there's very, very little information about him online, very little that you can find that's of any substance. So my sense is that Aaron Russo probably wasn't lying about this. I mean, there's the picture, he clearly did meet him, uh, and he was probably told, you know, I'm a Rockefeller, it's the Rockefeller family, I'm part of the tree, and blah, blah, blah. And he probably did tell him these stories, you know, oh, there's going to be something blah, 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 and maybe Russo might have inflated this or that, but maybe he was on the level. But at any rate, I think someone was suckered there. It was either Russo was suckered or the audience was suckered. At any rate, I did use that interview um, in a podcast, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, but I wouldn't use it today. <laughs> I would not cite that as a solid source today because there's just very little to back it up. So always pays to do your homework. And if anyone can hammer it down, who he is, where he falls on the Rockefeller family tree, who he's connected to, how he's connected in, but it just seems like he's uh, a fringe Rockefeller at the very best, and probably not privy to any inside information. Uh, I certainly wouldn't bank on that anyway. Okay, next question. Email from Phil. How did people manage before insurance companies took over healthcare? Can we ever get rid of them? Uh, good question. Thank you very much for that, Phil. Good question. And here's a good answer. It comes from Roderick T. Long uh, in an article called How Government Solved the Healthcare Crisis, Medical Insurance That Worked Until Government Fixed It. Um, but if you don't like the article version, well, never fear. There's a video version from the indispensable BitButter YouTube channel, which I will exhort you, demand you to go and subscribe to, uh, who had this video version of that informative essay. Today, the United States faces a health care crisis. Medical costs are too high, and health insurance is out of reach for the poor. The cure is obvious to nearly everybody. Government must step in to solve the problem. Eighty years ago, Americans were also told their nation was facing a health care crisis. Back then, the complaint was that medical costs were too low and that health insurance was too accessible. But in that era, too, government stepped forward to solve the problem, and boy, did they solve it. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, one of the primary sources of health care and health insurance for the working poor in Britain, Australia, and the United States was the Fraternal Society. Fraternal societies, or friendly societies in Britain and Australia, were voluntary mutual aid associations. 
over one quarter of all American adults were members of fraternal societies in 1920. Fraternal societies were particularly popular among blacks and immigrants. A fraternal society was a group of working class people who formed an association and paid monthly fees into the association's fund. Individual members would then be able to draw on the pooled resources in times of need. There were a great many societies to choose from. Their most commonly offered services were life insurance, disability insurance, and lodge practice. Lodge practice meant that the lodge would retain a doctor to provide medical care to its members. <laughs> members would pay a yearly fee and then call on the doctor's services as needed. If members were unhappy with the doctor, the contract might not be renewed. Most remarkable was the low cost at which these medical services were provided. At the turn of the century, an average worker's daily wage would pay for a year's worth of medical care, much cheaper than on the regular market. Yet, licensed physicians competed vigorously for lodge contracts, perhaps because of the security they offered. This competition kept members' costs low. The response of the medical establishment, both in America and in Britain, was one of outrage. Many saw it as a blow to the dignity of the profession that trained physicians should be eagerly bidding for the chance to serve lower-class tradesmen. Such low fees, many doctors complained, were bankrupting the medical profession. Socially inferior people were setting physicians' fees and sitting in judgment to determine whether their services had been satisfactory. They demanded that the government must do something. And so it did. And I think we know how the rest of that story goes. Of course, in Britain, they just cracked down on those evil lodge practices and instead used uh, boards of physicians, trained professionals, doctors, to decide how much the doctors should be paid. Wow, I wonder how that's going to work out. And then in America, it was a more... It was a more careful and deliberate process and took a long time and Medicare and Medicaid and health insurance companies and all of that, blah, 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 and Obamacare. Uh, again, I think we see the end result of all of that. But don't worry, I hear if you vote Trump 2016, that's going to take care of Obamacare, right, guys? Keep voting harder. Um, yeah, so uh, the question is, was there medical care before government involvement? Absolutely there was. And could there be afterwards? Absolutely there could. The key word is uh, mutual aid, voluntary mutual aid associations. Keep that in mind. That's a pretty important topic. And uh, it's not just about healthcare. Many other things besides, but healthcare is one of the applications of that. Um, and it's best for us to know that real history that really did take place. And it's a real historical phenomenon that we don't get taught about. We don't, we don't even, we're not even asked to think about that. What, what was healthcare like before government involvement? Anyway, there's a whole story in there that relates to the whole big oil story that, uh, uh, as you will remember from how big oil conquered the world, there was the Flexner Report, the Carnegie Institute Report with the Rockefeller Research, Simon Flexner, which was a key part of forming the medical college system that became the licensure system, which was part of that American side of getting rid of the old lodge practices and everything. But anyway, that's a whole interesting sidebar in and of itself. But 
The real point of this is you should be subscribed to the Bitbutter YouTube channel for some interesting animations like that. Definitely worth your time. All right, let's move on to the next question. This one in from Chris, who writes, uh, if Bitcoin really is a threat to the current financial system, why would Lagarde publicly warn the system members and thus draw even more attention to Bitcoin? What do you think about the SDR implementing blockchain technology? Is this a hint in the direction you are suppose, uh, suspecting of developing SDRs into a one-world currency? And then Chris links to this article from CryptoCoinsNews.com. Uh, IMF's Lagarde warns banks cryptocurrencies will bring massive disruptions. Quote, the head of the International Monetary Fund has stated that central banks and banking providers should start taking cryptocurrencies seriously. Christine Lagarde, managing director of the IMF, was speaking to the media at the IMF annual meetings in Washington, D.C. when she said global financial giants risk being blindsided by new financial innovations like cryptocurrencies. The ways in which new technologies are lowering the cost to make financial transactions more accessible, even in very small numbers, I think it's already massively disruptive, she added. And then it goes on to say, asked if the IMF would develop its own cryptocurrency someday, Lagarde revealed the IMF's special drawing rights, an internally developed currency that functions as an international reserve asset swappable with international currencies, could soon incorporate blockchain technology for increased efficiency at lowered costs. End quote. So, a very interesting article. And if you are like 99.9% .9 of the public, you would have interchangeably swapped out any use of the word Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain in that article and in that question as all being the same thing. But <laughs> that is the Bitcoin PSYOP. Those are all separate terms that have separate meanings in different contexts and have different different uh, uses and applications and different uh, ideas attached to them. So, if you do not know the difference between Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain, and let's throw in digital currency and virtual currency, all separate terms, if you don't know the difference and what those terms mean, well, never fear, the Corbett Report is here. I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago uh, called The Bitcoin PSYOP Explained, in which I talk about this interesting phenomenon where we have all of these terms being bandied about as if they are all the same thing. And you'll notice even in Chris's question, is Bitcoin uh, being promoted by Christine Lagarde? Well, Christine Lagarde does not mention Bitcoin per specifically uh, in those quoted passages. Um, she does go on to talk about, uh, not, many of you have not heard not, uh, not only about Bitcoins, but blockchains and that unbelievable technology that underlies Bitcoins, blah, blah, blah. So she's not talking about Bitcoin and she's not promoting Bitcoin. She's talking about the blockchain technology and implementation of that for SDRs and cryptocurrencies. So again, there's, I don't even want to say nuance. It's just using words, but it's words that most people don't even know what they mean and don't even know that there is a difference. So that's an important part of this because if you don't know the, what the meaning of these words, then you can't, you can't ask a, a, a comprehensible, sensible, meaningful question about it and you can't get an answer about it. So, um, so that will be the first step. Go to the Bitcoin PSYOP Explained and learn about this. And you will also learn in that article that the Bank for International Settlements, the apex of the, the pyramid, according to Carol Quigley, is writing white papers right now about central bank-issued quote-unquote cryptocurrencies. This is a real thing. It's a real phenomenon that's really happening right now. And you have Christine Lagarde talking about the SDR and how it's going to be using blockchain technology to facilitate transactions. And you have China that's been developing its own digital currency of some sort for the last couple of years. And who knows when they'll spring that on the public. 
And uh, Russia was recently talking about banning Bitcoin exchanges, but they're coming out with their own cryptocurrency. What's going on here? Again, unless you know that these are different things, different terms with different meanings, it will seem strange to you. But the long story short is that absolutely 100% the central bankers of all stripes are latching onto these terms and they're going to make a, a blockchain enabled central bank issued fiat crypto and and put that on the public and use all the Bitcoin cachet and everything that's going on right now to, to sell it to the public, most of whom will go along, whatever, is this is Bitcoin that people are talking about? I don't know, whatever, it's Fedcoin, good enough, let's use it. And it'll just be a, you know, it will be the, the mark of the beast system that everyone's worried about, the total 100% surveillance of absolutely every transaction in the economy, all overseen by the central bank. I mean, that will be the ultimate way in which they'll take it, obviously, because that is one of the ways that this technology can be used. But it's not the only way this technology can be used. And again, unless we know what, what this even means, what, what, it, what is possible with actual blockchain technology, not the private permissioned blockchain, but public permissionless blockchain, what does that mean? Again, we have to know these definitions. Without these fundamental concepts in place, we can't even begin to get our heads around this concept. And, you know, I recognize 99% of the public, you know, back in the day couldn't program their VCRs. I don't know what the 21st century equivalent of that is, but these are not people who are going to understand these issues in much depth. Um, but unfortunately, the technology is increasing in leaps and bounds, and people's understanding is still way down in the stuck on stupid, where most people don't even know the difference between these different terms. So please get up to date on the Bitcoin PSYOP and what these different words mean so that we can have an actually productive conversation about this. Because yes, central banks are going to try to issue their own cryptocurrencies, but do not take that as the essence of cryptocurrency. Uh, cryptocurrency has the potential to be pirate money, but it certainly isn't the way the crypto, the central bank crooks are going to take it, right? So, all right, let's move on to Travis, who writes, uh, Hi, James, I've always been curious about the true translation of Bin Laden's video after 9-11. Some have claimed that he did not confess in this video, but instead made other claims about government involvement. Have you had anyone personally translate the video? While I don't buy the official story of 9-11, I'm not sure I trust the authenticity of some of the translations as to what Bin Laden actually said. Thanks. Thank you for the question, Travis. And in fact, this relates to a couple of pieces of media I put out several years ago, so I'm sure most people in the audience haven't seen or heard them. Uh, one is Interview 285 with Mayor Osarin, and the other is Episode 174 on Patriot Mythology. I'll put the links in the show notes so you can follow them. But the long story short is that this video, which is often referred to as the Fat Bin Laden video in conspiracy circles, uh, because uh, they take one frame of Bin Laden with his head to the side, and they put that side by side with a picture of Bin Laden, and they say, look, this fat person on the, is clearly an actor, and it's not even a good actor. It's not, it looks nothing like Osama. But, uh, that's, that in itself is a false interpretation of a single frame of a video that's been converted from PAL to NTSC and there's elongation in the horizontal dimension and blah, blah, blah. Long story short, watch the whole video from the very beginning when Bin Laden walks into the room and it is clearly a tall, lanky man who looks exactly like Osama Bin Laden. It isn't a fat Bin Laden actor playing Bin Laden. If you watch the actual video instead of just looking at the one screenshot that people will often show you. But anyway, that being said, it's a real video of Osama Bin Laden. And the story is 
that the, uh, the, the troops, the, you know, the NATO forces, the crusading NATO forces, just stumbled across this. They were raiding houses in Jalalabad, and they raided this random house and randomly found this videotape and popped it in, and wouldn't you know it, it's Osama bin Laden confessing to 9-11. Wow. That's the official story, which of course is uh, total crackpot nonsense, uh, which Miros Aserin completely eviscerates in his article on the subject, he, um, and we go through that in the interview. His story, and he constructs this from the, the evidence from the tape and blah, 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 but his story is that this was part of a sting operation, and that's why they couldn't reveal where this came from. But at any rate, at any rate, um, the real question is the translation, because, well, is this, is this Osama bin Laden? Sure seems to be. Uh, is it after 9-11? Sure seems to be, given the timeline of what we know from the tape. And is he confessing to 9-11? Well, Mira Saren, for his part, I don't want to put anything on him, he's, he seems to think so, yes, absolutely. I, he has no problem with the translation, the Pentagon-sublied translation. But in episode 174 of the podcast, Patriot Mythology, I go through this in more detail, and I point out that the German TV show Das Erst commissioned their own translation of the video, and they found that at every key point where the official Pentagon transcript has these words that seem to indicate that bin Laden had foreknowledge, they calculated the attack, blah, 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 all of those key points are either mistranslated or just completely inserted. There's no way to justify the use of that word in that translation, according to this German TV show. And this was, I think, 2002 that they did this their own translation of the video, and they found the Pentagon's messing with this. This isn't a good translation. Uh, bin Laden isn't confessing. Now that's a pretty important thing, right? I haven't seen that followed up anywhere, at all, by anyone. And I don't speak Arabic, so I, I don't know. Wouldn't, don't you think that would be a good idea for an open source investigation? I mean, if only someone, someone in the corporate report audience could speak Arabic. Maybe we could get a different take on this. Maybe this could be the biggest story of the last two decades. Hey, Bin Laden video confession was uh, mistranslated by the Pentagon. That's a pretty big story. So let's let's keep that on in mind for a you know open source investigation in the future because I think that is pretty important. Um, so thank you for bringing that up, Travis. And now for the first time in corporate report history, we have. <laughs> Another question from Travis. A different Travis, though. This is not the same... <laughs> different email addresses, anyway. It's the same name. <laughs> Travis writes, Have you seen recent activity by government agencies to collect and store information from genetic testing companies similar to the way our internet data is being collected? Will there be a time when the U.S. government forces genetic testing companies to turn over their data? And it is, is it reasonable to support the aims of a genetic testing company who chooses to keep patient information private? Good question. Thank you, Travis. Increasingly important question in this Gattaca-like age that we're moving into. But unfortunately, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but guess what? Uh, not only could the government do this, not only is there indications the government has been doing this, the government has been openly and admittedly doing this for decades. In fact, for four decades, or maybe five by this point. Uh, nearly a decade ago, back in 2009, I was writing about the DNA control grid, announcing the DNA control grid, where I was talking about, you know those blood samples they take from you at birth, they prick your heel and get a little bit of blood sample on your card? Well, you know that is property of the government, and that the government uh, uses these companies, but they own these cards, and they, they own the right to use those cards for testing, including genetic testing. Did you know that? Most people don't. But, you know, it was a, nearly a decade ago now that that became, it was one time that was a crazy conspiracy theory, that became public knowledge over 
well, about a decade ago. I wrote about it in 2009. I'll put the link to that article in, as well as I did an entire episode, uh, 118, on who owns your DNA, which is highly relevant to this conversation. So this has been happening for a very long time. The government does own your DNA. They do have your genetic material, and uh, they do claim ownership of that material, and they do claim the right to use that for whatever research they want to do. So guess what? They already have it. I don't know what to go from to do with that or go from there, but at any rate, that is the fact. So uh, your question is answered. Will there be a time when the U.S. Uh, government forces genetic testing companies to turn over their data? The, well, yeah, that was a long time ago, and it's been happening. And you're assuming you've been born in a hospital in the Western world in the last few decades, your data's in there too. All right, uh, let's move on to the next question. We have a audio question that was delivered through the SpeakPipe application on my contact form from Leon. Hello, this is Leon from New York. I'm a huge admirer of the work that you do, and especially your incredible work ethic, James. And I have two questions. My first question is kind of in the wake of that documentary that you just put out, which is what are your thoughts on the differences in how the eugenics programs of the 20th century manifested themselves in different countries, specifically the USA and Germany? In other words, if both nations had a eugenics agenda at relatively similar points in history with similar goals, why was it Nazi Germany that ended up pursuing a more actively destructive and murderous eugenics program domestically through things like Action T4, whereas in the US, the program seemed to stop at sterilized of undesirable people, unless there's something I don't know about. I'm curious about your thoughts on that, and my other slightly more frivolous question is, I wonder if you've heard the song Headless Heroes by the late Eugene McDaniels. I've never seen it mentioned in the Truth Music episodes, and I believe it deserves a special mention, not only because it's one of the most funky protest songs of all time, but I think it's one of the most prescient which is all the more amazing considering it was recorded all the way back in 1971. It essentially encapsulates the entire anti-New World Order movement and everything it stands for before that was even a thing in the popular mind. And I feel you and your audience will definitely have a special appreciation for it. I see it as kind of a, an unofficial theme song for the movement. But yeah, those are my questions. Thank you and keep on fighting the good fight, James. Peace. Thank you very much for that, Leon. And just on the note of headless heroes, uh, I'm glad that people think that I know everything about everything, but I, I actually don't. So I do appreciate the tip. I'd never heard that song before, but I think you're very correct. That is very apropos of the Truth Music series, isn't it? So I hope people will check that out. It is available for streaming from various sources. So uh, interesting to note that that was, that's what, four decades old at this point? And very, very relevant, isn't it? So. Onto the meat of your question, why did the eugenics philosophy get so far advanced in Germany as opposed to America? Well, I think we should go even one step further. What about in England, where the eugenics philosophy was born? Um, I don't remember to what extent this made it into the final cut of why Big Oil conquered the world, but at any rate, in my larger conversation with Joe Plummer about eugenics, uh, he did make the point that eugenics in England was this more scientific uh, endeavor and more kind of stately and uh, not quite so passionate, not so fervent as it, what it became in America. In, and that, it remained it, that character, that flavor in the British eugenics strain was more about the scientific side of it. 
in America, it was more about the, no, let's get in there and do something. Let's do something about this problem. We got to get rid of that defective germplasm. So it took on this dysgenic, dysgenic uh, flavor with the sterilization. And so they pushed it in that direction. And then obviously in Germany, it, uh, they put in the sterilization laws right away. And then the ultimately action T4 into euthanasia, which was always the end goal of the most rabid eugenicists. They always thought, well, we have to, and ultimately this means we're going to have to go towards euthanasia and getting rid, getting rid of the defective germs, uh, germplasm. But uh, in America, it was not politically viable at that time. So I think the point is that in England, it developed spontaneously as an outgrowth of things that were happening in the scientific context of the day. Darwinism turned into social Darwinism, turned into eugenics. I think we can see that development and how it moved that way and how it was in those scientific circles. But when it came to America, it didn't just didn't just come to America. It didn't just blow on shore like a hurricane, like what a, you know, the metaphor that I used in the Why Big Oil uh, script. It, it came because there was a passionate, fervent, religious convert in the form of Charles Davenport, who, 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 who fervently believed in this idea, passionately believed in this idea, and, and took it up as a mantle and uh, almost like a religious cause, and worked passionately to construct the infrastructure of the American eugenics uh, campaign generally, the, all the different boards and organizations and the eugenics record office. Davenport was like a man possessed trying to almost single-handedly set up all of these different institutions and things and recruit people into them and, and make sure that this could be done. And I guess he did a great job in that respect. He certainly did set up all of these different things to make that possible. But just within the context of what they were working in uh, and the fact that they had to do everything they could just to engineer the right Supreme Court case to take it to the Supreme Court so that they could get the sterilization passed, that was as far as they could go at that point, just, just in terms of the context of where they were at and what, what, was, ha what was possible legally and, and politically at that time in that context. Um, again, with the end goal ultimately always being euthanasia, but they knew it just wasn't politically viable at that time. In Germany, it was politically viable. Why? Uh, I think because, again, it didn't just randomly transplant to Germany. It came to Germany because, again, there were passionate fervent believers in the racial science and the, you know, race and blood and all of this was very much a core part of what was happening in Germany, specifically in the 20s and 30s. It was a core part of the eugenics uh, philosophy that guided the Nazi master race philosophy that was a real thing. Rudolf Hess famously said, national socialism is nothing other than applied biology. They truly believed in this. And so it, they put it into action as soon as they could, and they could put it into action and put it in much further, action T4, if you will, um, much more, uh, much further and much more advanced than in America, because in Germany, it was the emergency situation, the fall of the Weimar Republic, the rise of the Third Reich. It was a, a politically chaotic situation anyway. So all of these things were possible that were not possible in the American political and economic and social context of, of the time. So that's why I think it went further in Germany. And all of those forces combined to make it into that. And it's interesting to watch eugenical news in the 30s um, during the rise of the Third Reich and everything they were doing. Uh, they bragged. They openly bragged. As I mentioned in the documentary, uh, Hitler came in January 33. By July 33, they'd passed their eugenic sterilization law that was consciously modeled 
specifically modeled on uh, the draft model state legislation drafted up by Harry Laughlin in the United States that formed the basis for the Virginia law that became the test case for the Buck v. Bell decision. Uh, that was what the, uh, the, the Nazis modeled their, their version of that eugenic sterilization law and the eugenical news bragged about it. Like, hey, they got their model from us. And, and uh, there were editorials that they were writing. Yeah, it seems pretty harsh what they're doing over there, but it's, it's necessary for the preservation of the race and all of this. So the eugenical segment in America was, was definitely cheering them on. And clearly, obviously, as I point out, funded handily and heartily by the Rockefeller Foundation, Interestingly enough, at arm's length, the Rockefeller Foundation did give all this money, but they gave it through the Paris office. They never gave it directly from America. It was always through their foreign office. So, uh, there, I mean, there were political tensions even at that point in the early 30s, let alone in the late 30s, let alone during the war, obviously. So, um, uh, eventually, the American eugenicists started to step back, and that's when crypto-eugenics came on the scene. And that's a whole other story, which, trust me, there's more coming on. So... Thank you for the question. Let's move on to the next question. Peter asks, how soon until Japan defaults on their debt? If Japan sells more diapers for adults than for children, Japan is in real trouble. If they default, will this be the domino for the rest of the world? Thank you for the question, Peter. I'm sure it's a question a lot of people might have, uh, because people might know that Japan has the largest debt-to-GDP ratio of any country in the developed world. 254%, I believe, in 2016. So, yes, a lot of debt. Uh, the real question is, who would they default to? Because, you may not know this about Japan's debt, no, fully 95% of that debt is owed internally, domestically. It's owed to uh, retirees and pensioners and, uh, and banks and financial institutions in Japan. Uh, only 5% is owned for, uh, foreign. So... That's interesting. So would they, would the Japanese government be defaulting and collapsing to Mr. and Mrs. Yamada, you know, out in, out in Kanagawa or something? I mean, who would they default to and in what way would that happen? There are economists that argue that debt is debt and it doesn't matter that, you know, it's domestic or foreign, but I think politically it does matter. It does matter if you're defaulting to some foreign creditor that's coming knocking on your door or if it's an internal domestic situation because then it's a political situation more so than some sort of international economic crisis. So that's one of the things to keep in mind. Some other surprising things about the Japanese debt. Yes, it is huge. I believe it's uh, uh, just past a quadrillion yen, which is over $10.4 trillion, something like that, um, which I think per capita is more than the U.S., right? Um, at least according to the official U.S. debt of 20 trillion. Uh, uh, but, uh, and it's uh, fully half of tax revenue goes towards servicing the debt. It's 50% now, I think, of tax revenue in Japan just goes to servicing that debt. But uh, did you know that uh, at this point, 40% of Japan outstanding Japanese government debt is owed to the Bank of Japan? That's right, the Bank of Japan is snapping it up. In fact, the Bank of Japan's asset book is now 90% of Japanese GDP. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, there is an answer to what's going on right now, and the answer is the Bank of Japan. They're monetizing the debt. Yay! What could go wrong? Did you know, in fact, did you know that quantitative easing is a Japanese term? It was developed at the Bank of Japan by, I believe, a German researcher at the Bank of Japan in the 1990s. And uh, there's more on that in the Masters of the Yen, which was a documentary I talked about before. I've, 
I've recommended with caveats before on this Questions for Corbett podcast. Um, it's worth checking out if you want to know more about that debt. So basically, long story short is that uh, the Bank of Japan is monetizing the debt. So they, they've got it all under control, right? But here's another surprising fact about Japanese and debt. Did you know that the largest creditor nation in the world is Japan? And has been for the last two and a half decades. Yes, the largest creditor in the world is Japan. Isn't that interesting? I mean, because we think of this, you know, when you think of Japan, you think of the debt problem. Well, actually, they're a net creditor nation to the world. So, actually, I mean, an at least equally plausible, if not even more plausible situation than some sort of internal domestic collapse, however that would look, would be something, some sort of contagion from outside, maybe some emerging market defaulting on its debt and that going up the creditor chain to Japan and Japan tumbling inwards from that. I mean, that's an interesting idea that perhaps the contagion would go the opposite way. It wouldn't be Japan falling outward and causing some sort of international incident. It would be some sort of international incident causing the collapse in Japan. At any rate, the demographic situation, I'll certainly grant you, is it's insoluble from the perspective of debt-based money. I mean, debt-based money systems are not are not designed, not manufactured for shrinking population. I mean, there's no way to counteract that from within the logic of the system as it exists. So good luck fixing that one, Abe, who just won his landslide re-election in the snap election. His great new mandate that he's got to continue doing his Abenomics. It's going to work any year now. I mean, Japan's going to be the rising new... Yeah, mm, we've heard that before. So, no, everything is not peachy keen, hunky-dory in Japan, but there are some surprising things about Japanese debt that mean I'm not, I don't think that the collapse is going to happen the way people think it might happen. Um, anyway, lots of links in the show notes that I'll put in there to all the things that I mentioned there. All right, let's move on to uh, next question. John writes, Is the growing meme-slash-trope trend heralding the devolution of grammatical language into one of static imagery? Will we reach a sort of Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra point, where we know the sentiment but not the words themselves? More generally, how can we nip in the bud any pr prospective newspeak if it's being popularized and marketed to our youth? <laughs> and John, you win the episode right there for Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. What a reference. I haven't thought about that in 20 plus years, however long it's been. And <laughs> it, the funny thing is I instantly knew what you were referencing there, which maybe undermines your point, because I don't even remember the words, but I, I knew what you were talking about. Maybe that is your point. At any rate, um, thank you for that. For people who are interested, look it up. But uh, uh, yeah, clearly your bigger point, I do see. Um, there is a problem, isn't there? There is at least a potential problem. Uh, I'm sure by this point, even the least connected, the least hip and aware people know about the meme wars and the idea that, you know, memes won the 2016 election and all this meme magic and all this stuff. Uh, now, I guess there's a couple of things to say about this. One is that let's not be fuddy-duddy about it. Every generation that has ever lived has looked at the way that the children are speaking and looked on with despair at the fall of civilization. Uh, and I don't think every generation has been right to do so. Language is an evolving thing. Uh, the, if it stays static, or if the rules are the rules and cannot be broken, then it's a dead language, and uh, it's for, uh, dead language is for dead people. So the fact that language is evolving is not a bad thing, but you're very right if, if, it, if it becomes just memes. If it just, I mean, that's clearly idiocracy. Um, to move from the printed word and 
arguments and references and facts and data down to YouTube videos, down to BuzzFeed listicles, down to memes. I mean, clearly we're getting less and less actual information with each iteration. Uh, to some extent, it may just be because different media give rise to different forms of communication and different things can be communicated in different ways through different media. So the internet media gives rise to this meme culture that creates these ideas. And if memes are just one form of a certain type of language that people can use to, to take a certain very specific point and hit someone between the eyes with it, then that's something. I mean, there is a form of communication taking place there, and there is an art to it, and sometimes it can be done very well, and it can really hit someone in a way that they maybe they haven't thought about it before. That can happen, and that's, I mean, that is communication. Sure, why not? But if it becomes that, if that becomes our political discourse, then we're in a lot of trouble. So there is something to that, and obviously the Newspeak problem. I have talked about that on the podcast in the past. Um, Newspeak is double plus ungood. I don't know off the top of my head what episode that was in the hundreds somewhere, but uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. But in fact, I have more to say about that. So there is a future podcast coming on that, and it really is. I really have planned that. So hold on to your hat for that. Thank you for the question. All right, uh, since we're coming to the end of the episode here, let's wrap things up in a lighthearted way. Uh, we have a tweet in uh, on the Q4C hashtag from Liberty Weekly, at Liberty Weekly. Uh, Liberty Weekly is a great little podcast. If you haven't listened to it, please do check it out. Uh, they have some great episodes. I thought the episode of Eugenics and Minimum Wage was especially fascinating little bit of history and uh, definitely worth checking out. So I'll throw the link into that in the show notes. But uh, at Liberty Weekly tweeted me, uh, James, I know you like uh, I know you like the Smashing Pumpkins. In the interest of October, the wife and I want to know what your favorite SP song is. <laughs> uh, either you don't know what you ask, or you do know what you ask, and you're you're being cheeky. Uh, yeah, you can't ask a real fan what is your favorite. I mean, that's that's insane. That's that's impossible. It's you know, what is your favorite child kind of question. Um, what is your favorite SP song? No, I can't. I can't answer that. If I had to, if I had to, I guess I can narrow it down to the top 100 songs. In fact, I did. <laughs> you weren't expecting that. Yes, a couple of years ago, I put together my top 100 Smashing Pumpkin song playlist for my subscriber newsletter. And oddly enough, not many subscribers were interested. <laughs> but hey, in the interest of uh, answering your question, I'm going to put that playlist in the show notes for this Questions for Corbett so you can check out my top 100 Smashing Pumpkin songs. And my number one would be in there somewhere. It depends what day of the week you're asking and what way the wind's blowing. I guess today at this point, I'd say... Uh, translucent but I mean don't hold me to that tomorrow would be something different so anyway I'll put in my top 100 and you and your wife can enjoy that playlist uh, along with I hope some other people in the crowd all right that's going to do it for this time um, always lots of questions more than I could possibly answer so if I didn't answer your question ask it again and maybe I'll get to it next time I do appreciate all the questions and I hope you appreciate the responses I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I hope you will stay tuned to The Corbett Report for lots more information coming at you shortly. Thank you for tuning in. Available now from CorbettReport.com. Oil. The 19th century was transformed by it. The 20th century was shaped by it. And the 21st century is moving beyond it. But who gave birth to the oil industry? 
And what are they planning to do with that power in a post-carbon world? Heirs to an oil fortune join the divestment drive. There is a price to carbon in their future. The negative impact of population growth. That is important not only for the planet, it is important for the business. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. How and why Big Oil conquered the world. Watch the documentary for free or purchase a DVD copy at CorbettReport.com slash Big Oil.